everybody. On today's episode of Trek in Time, we're going to talk about Stigma. That's episode 14 of season two of Enterprise. And we'll be answering the question, can T'Pol deal with the fallout of the mind meld assault she experienced in season one? Can she survive a disease brought on by the mind meld? And can Trip overcome his moral distaste for sleeping with another man's wife? <laughs> and finally, this question. How do these two stories actually share airtime together? <laughs> Welcome to Trek in Time. As our regular listeners know, we're watching every episode of Star Trek in chronological order. That means that we are still in Enterprise. These are, of course, the oldest stories in the Trekverse. We're also taking a look at the context that these episodes originally were broadcast in. So we're taking a look at history, the time of these episodes, which would put us in early 2003. And who are we? I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a published author. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids. And with me is my brother, Matthew. He's the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Trying to stay warm, but all's good. How about you? I'm doing all right. Just a quick word of support to the people in Ukraine. Like everybody else, our awareness of the disastrous events that are unfolding right now make us feel like there's not enough we can do. There's not enough ways available to us to support the people who are struggling with an inhuman situation. But we hope that saner days are ahead and that that suffering can end soon. And we hope that our listeners are on our side with that. This show is built around a series which is predicated upon the idea that humanity can overcome its differences. And when real world events like the ones we're seeing unfold right now in Ukraine tell us that that's not what's happening, it breaks my heart a little bit. So yeah. as for today's episode, as I mentioned, we're going to be taking a look at the episode Stigma. Just big picture before we get into the details. Matt, what did you think of Stigma? Overall, I, uh, I don't know if we're going to diverge here, but I like this episode. For a particular reason, mainly because it's following up on a previous storyline that we had, and I liked the connection to something we saw before, and it's still going to continue later in the series, which I think is interesting. So there's some interesting like through lines, longer story plots that I liked about it. I'm with you on that. I enjoyed the connection to past and future episodes. I enjoyed the aspects of what that does for character development around Paul in particular. Mm-hmm. I also enjoyed this episode's ability to, and we haven't had this happen a lot up to this point, but the entire point of our podcast, taking a look at an episode in, in the moment of when it yep. was broadcast, this episode is very much of its era. Of it the is moment. very much of the moment and is talking about something using the strength of sci-fi Sci-fi's greatest strength is, of course, to be able to talk about the present by giving it distance. This episode does that in a really, really powerful way. So I'm looking yeah. forward to talking about that. Before we get into that, Matt, do you have any comments from previous episodes that you want to share with yeah. us? Yes, I do. From our last episode, there was a comment from VFX Soup. Hi, guys. Great series. As someone who worked on part of Next Gen, a lot of DS9, and most of Voyager, I want to say this is amazing. Keep it up. Thank you, Mark. I want to reach out to him because I'd love to talk to somebody that worked on those shows. We should absolutely reach out to Mark. Mark, thank you for listening. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So for today's episode, Stigma, guess what, Matt? It's everybody's favorite moment in the episode <laughs> me where we Wikipedia. turn to the Wikipedia synopsis. Take us into oh what this episode, Stigma, is all about. Yeah, just, just to clarify for everybody, I always go in blind onto this. This is the first time I'm seeing this, so bear with me. Stigma is the, oh my gosh, can't even get in the first sentence. Stigma is the 40th episode, production 214 of the television series Star Trek Enterprise. The fort, oh, the fort, oh, the, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Wait, wait, yeah. wait. Yeah, they said time. 40th. They said 40th, but now they're going the 14th of the second season. It's the 40th episode. 
but the 14th of, of the, the second season it's the 40th episode overall it's the 14th of the second season <laughs> both of those matter? are important to have in one sentence together so let's, why is it even important to bring yeah. that up yes this science fiction episode has a story about a spacecraft crew in the 22nd century dealing with an alien disease and also mortality and a mortality morality play, play about sexuality morality play but sexually transmitted diseases in the episode is revealed that subcommander to Paul has a degenerative disease, Panar syndrome contracted for her mind melt in fusion. I'm surprised they didn't say another episode of a Star <laughs> Trek show that was produced in the 19th, 20th century. She must face being ostracized by Vulcan society and losing her position on enterprise. Wow. That first sentence yeah. really threw me for a loop. I'm sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> And the nature of Wikipedia being what wow. it is, I can guarantee you that the first sentence and the last sentence were not written by the same person. No. This Wikipedia continues to astound me with giving me the sense that there somewhere is an algorithm that is just a random synopsis generator. And it spits <laughs> these out because it's almost, it's almost readable. It almost makes sense. But yes. it also doesn't. This episode was directed by David Livingston. We've seen his work before, and I think he does some very good work in this episode. And it was written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga. And we have talked about in the past, all respect to Berman and Braga. They were two remarkable showrunners to really resurrect Trek during mm -hmm. an era. When it came back, everybody was kind of surprised. What do you mean you're bringing back a Star Trek show in the, the mid eighties? That doesn't make any sense. How is that going to work? And then they were part of shepherding it through multiple series. And that's a remarkable achievement. So all the respect in the world to the two of them, but Matt and I up to this point have both referred to the kind of, okay, when they are the writers involved yes. on the episode. There have been some episodes which haven't been so great that they have been the writers on. This episode, I think, gives me a sense of when they're given a moment to write something of the moment, they can really pin it down in a really yeah. remarkable way. I think the writing in this episode is very, very strong. It shows and why it, they got to where they are. It yes. shows why they got there, and it shows that perhaps there was a little bit of exhaustion in the earlier episodes that we've been talking about where we felt like, they just don't seem to have the same kind of, I want to say chutzpah, but Gravelox keeps coming into my mind. This episode originally, let me just like jump past all of that and enter into this part of the, the episode. The original air date of this episode was February 5th, 2003. And I'll be talking about some of the larger cultural moments of that time in 2003 later. But first, these details. The number one song, well, Matt, you'll remember this better than most. The number one song was Beautiful by Christina Aguilera. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Had that on repeat. On, yeah, it's on your Spotify playlist, I know. That's right. Number one movie, well, it's a little movie called The Recruit, which was an American spy thriller directed by Roger Donaldson, starring Al Pacino, Colin Farrell, and Bridget Moynihan. It made $16 million. And I had zero recollection that this movie even existed. I don't even remember what this movie is. <laughs> I think it's worth to our listeners, Google this movie just to look at the poster because you'll see what looks like a very focused and committed Al Pacino and an extremely confused Colin Farrell. <laughs> and on television, on the date of this airing, February 5th, this show earned 4.4 million viewers. Which, again, we're used to this by now, puts it at the bottom of its time slot. It still is able to beat Dawson's Creek. Take that, Mr. Dawson. But it was losing out to shows like That 70s Show, which had 12 million, My Wife and Kids, also with 12 million, and The Price is Right Million Dollar Spectacular. Oh my gosh. Which also had 12 million. <laughs> the number one show for the week was 2020 and that's an unusual appearance by a news program with 27 million viewers for the week and i looked into well why would this be the number one program for the week i i scratched my head about that until i realized that this was merely four days after the columbia disaster the space shuttle columbia burning up during re-entry in the earth's atmosphere as a result of 
a failure of the tiles that were supposed to protect it from reentry heat. And in the New York Times, there were stories regarding General Powell, at the time Secretary of State, was making claims that Iraq was moving weapons to fool inspectors. And of course, we know long-term, those weapons were never found. And NASA was facing criticism about tile safety, which had been first identified in the 1990s, but had been unaddressed. And Hmm. as a result, the Columbia disaster occurred, which effectively put the- the, Ended it. Yeah, ended the, the space shuttle program. And normally when I talk about the news, what's in the news, I'm talking about very particular news stories, but I wanted to get into this part of what was going on in larger culture because I think it plays an important part in our discussions around this episode. And what I'm talking about is the AIDS crisis, the AIDS epidemic. What was it like at this point in 2003 to give you a sense of where we were in the year 2006? President George W. Bush indicated that he would issue an executive order allowing HIV-positive people to enter the United States on standard visas. Up to this point, at this point in 2003, if you were trying to visit the United States on a visa, there was a question, are you infected with HIV? And if you said yes, you could be denied entry. On October 30th, 2009, President Obama reauthorized the Ryan White HIV AIDS bill, which expanded care and treatment through federal funding to nearly half a million people. The Department of Health and Human Services also crafted regulation that would end the HIV travel and immigration ban effective in January 2010. On January 4th, 2010, the United States Department of Health and Human Services and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention removed HIV infection from the list of, quote, communicable diseases of public health significance due to its not being spread by casual contact, air, food, or water, and removed HIV status as a factor to be considered in granting of travel visas, disallowing HIV status from among the diseases that could prevent people who are not U.S. citizens from entering the country. Doctors during the early days and When we're talking about HIV and AIDS, I've just mentioned that the rules in place restricting people from coming into the country were in place as late as 2010. So in 2003, they were still much in place. This perspective, the perspective of doctors on AIDS, AIDS was met with great fear and concern by the nation, much like any other endemic epidemic. And those who were primarily affected were homosexuals, African-Americans, Latinos, and intravenous drug users. The general thought of the population was to create distance and establish boundaries from those people. And some doctors were not immune from such impulses. During the epidemic, doctors began to not treat AIDS patients, not only to create distance from these groups of people, but also because they were afraid to contract the disease themselves. A surgeon in Milwaukee said, Quote, I've got to be selfish. It's an incurable disease that's uniformly fatal, and I'm constantly at risk of getting it. I've got to think about myself. I've got to think about my family. That responsibility is greater than to the patient. This is the mindset that was in place. In 1990, a national survey of doctors showed that only 24 believed, 24% believed that office-based practitioners should be legally required to provide care to, indivi- to individuals with HIV infection. The mindset from the early days when AIDS first started making news in the, in the 80s into the 90s and into the 2000s was that this was the problem of an immoral group of people. The this undesirables. Was, the undesirable people were the ones spreading this disease. And if they were not simply immoral people, they would not be getting sick. This was the disease of people who made bad choices and were on some level explicitly blamed for the fact that they contracted the disease. The thing that began to turn the tide was when the disease started impacting celebrities who started coming forward, people like Magic Johnson, who in broadcasting publicly that he had the illness, put a different face on it. He was an extremely popular and a successful professional athlete. He was not among the group that were, quote, supposed to get it. So people like Freddie Mercury, people who were putting a different face on it than the one that was easy to blame. And keep in mind, 
that the groups who were being talked about, African-Americans, Latinos, intravenous drug users, and homosexuals, these are already a group of people who had difficulty in gaining access to treatment, just in yep. a general sense. So now they were being taken from already having a difficult access to medical care to being denied medical care outright, all because of an argument about morality. All of that is on full display in this episode in which right from the beginning, we start with, I think, a very interesting directorial choice. Mm -hmm. The first scene in which Dr. Flox is informing to Paul that the treatment of her Pinar syndrome, which is known to be ultimately fatal for Vulcans, the treatment is losing its effectiveness, that things are not going to go well for her unless they can get more information to continue to expand on the type of treatment she's getting. The way that this opening scene is shot is as if you are in the perspective of Dr. Flox. It effectively removes him from the screen. I thought this was a very telling way of framing the opening because it puts to Paul in isolation. It puts her by herself. Despite the fact she's actually in the moment having a conversation, she is alone in this. She is being yep. sequestered and isolated a very powerful opening image. What did you think about the opening of this episode? No, I, I thought I had the exact same note. I just love the introduction of this because it sets her, even though she's emotionless, you can tell that there's something going on. And by the camera, just the camera technique, it's like the, it's like the technique of montage, how you can change the emotional, you can use the same exact clips, but how you pair them up will change your emotional reaction to it. So by isolating her the way they did, it sets a very clear tone for what this hard message that she's being delivered with and how she's going to have to grapple with it over the episode. It really kind of set everything up. And I really like that a lot. Yeah. We see the introduction of other Vulcans who are at a medical conference. The Enterprise visits this conference to allow, effectively, they're there just for Flocks so that he can, he can visit this conference. He takes the opportunity to meet with some Vulcan doctors and asks for more information. And here's where everything I just talked about, about the context of this episode in the American culture at the time, what the view of AIDS was. It is as if words that I talked about as a, a doctor in Milwaukee saying, I have to take care of myself before I can even consider treating somebody with this disease, which is guaranteed to kill me. These doctors are given those exact motives for how they are approaching Pinar syndrome. Pinar syndrome in the Vulcan culture is viewed as a syndrome that occurs only in those that practice mind melding. There is a minority of Vulcans who are born with the ability to easily mind meld. And it is seen as repugnant because they're Stoic controlled nature means the sharing of emotions is forbidden. I thought it was interesting that the doctor, who is the most vehemently against this, the he says sharing of emotions is repugnant to us. But mind melding is not just explicitly about emotion. I think in that moment of writing, it's an opportunity was taken to show that their relationship to what is happening in a mind meld is more about their bias about yep. the idea of sharing as opposed to the actual implications of what is happening in a mind meld. Did you see that as well? I did. One thing I'd want to bring up, just rewind us for a second, the whole, when Flox goes to the planet and he goes to these doctors asking them for information on the Paterna syndrome. The story he concocts to try to protect T'Pol's identity. Yeah. You could understand why he's, he's, T'Pol said, I don't want you talking to them about me. Right. So he's trying to, you know, doctor patient privilege, but his smokescreen is so bad, so stupid. Yeah. As he's doing it, I'm like, yeah, this is going to go over well with a species that's all about logic. They're going to see through your smokescreen in a half a heartbeat. I thought they could have come up with a better way for him to go about it because it shows how 
he didn't think this through. He right. didn't. It's like I have more faith in flocks to do something a little more subtle than what he did because it was very ham-fisted. But the distinction of how the doctors respond to the Panard syndrome is it's interesting because it's like two minds melding. It's not about just emotion. You're sharing thoughts as well as emotions. And you're the sharing fact that also experience as opposed correct. to. Yeah. So if you're looking at it from a purely logical point of view, there's a good reason to do mind melts because you're sharing those experiences and those thoughts. It's not just about the emotion, but yet they focus on that because of their innate bias. Humans are just ruled by their emotions and these other species are ruled by their emotions. It's an interesting dance. They never really dealt with it much in the episode, which disappointed me. But like it goes back to was it Sirach's teachings where it shows how the Vulcans diverged from the truth of Sirach's teachings and it became kind of perverted and distorted into the, the era of Vulcans we're seeing in this show has basically perverted his teachings and has kind of gone astray, but they don't realize yeah. they've gone astray yet. So it's like they will start to come come back to that later, but it's they didn't talk about that explicitly, and that was disappointing to me because mm. if you're not as <laughs> steeped in Star Trek as I am or you are, you're not going to know that. So it's like right. this comes, comes back to this show was written for people who are just like all in on Star Trek. And it was not super accessible for that reason of like really conveying what was going on and giving a little more depth to that bias. Um, right. I thought it would have been a little more interesting if they'd explored that a little bit more. I think that I, I do agree with you, but I think if you were to do that, it would have take you would have had to take away effectively the B storyline would have had to shrink so that you would have the room to be able to explore that because to explore that would have been discussions around what is it in the mind meld? Is it the fact that one individual is going to experience the emotional realities of the other person, which means now you are doubling up on having to buttress yourself against emotional experience? Is that the distaste or is it the experience of emotion at all? The, the potential of accidentally experience emotion is distasteful to them. Like you, you then need to tease that out through conversation in a way that it's going to take right. time. And I think that they wanted to balance all of this. And we'll talk about the B storyline. I feel like the B storyline can be synopsized very quickly and we can talk about it in more detail later. But the B storyline is very light in comparison to really the very heavy, heavy seriousness yeah. of we are watching a storyline in which one of the main characters of the series is being told you have a fatal disease it is going to likely kill you at some point in the future it will undo you and they're not saying by the end of the episode it is not in any way shape or form that kind of experience we are not being given a ticking clock onto paul to know that she's she's in mortal danger and there's no this puts the character in peril in a way that for a series like this is perfect because we're not being told a main character of the series might die by the end of this episode and you go in knowing well that's not going to happen she's a main character of the series mm -hmm. this is the perfect kind of peril because it's about her future past the show yes it's about a horizon including something as awful as this disease and so we're put in a position of legitimately connecting to that peril in a way that's deeper than oh there's a a mind that's connected itself to the enterprise will they detach it in time like we know they're going to detach it in time it's all about like we're going to see the details but we go in knowing yeah this is a different kind of of experience and i think that the heaviness of that they balanced it very clearly with the comic relief B storyline. Yep. One of the the things that you just mentioned about Flox's ham-fisted explanation, I felt like in the moment I had the exact same experience. I was just like, oh boy, what is he doing? He's like doing this terrible song and dance of like tappity, tappity, tappity. There's a disease on Denebula, right, which is yeah. similar to this. And it's just like, no, that's not working. When, when it I blow, think when it does blow up in his face, you can tell he regrets what he did. Yes. Like yes. there's a scene with him and DePaul where he looks like, I am so sorry. I am so, yeah. so sorry. Because yeah. he realized he'd made a very bad call. So they did, I, they did show the ramifications yeah. of that bad choice. 
I think that they showed the ramifications of that. I also think they needed the bad choice to be a bad choice so that they would be found out. Yeah. I think it's one of those dominoes that has to fall where somebody has to kind of like step in poop before you can have poop tracked through the hallways. (laughs) So you end up with that moment of just like, would he really do all of that? He kind of needed to. Somebody needed to let that cat out of the bag. The one that I didn't agree with the, where I thought the writing was questionable was when Archer found out about everything. Yeah. yeah. I, I can I tell by your intake of breath. It, yeah. His, his yeah. reaction when he was in his, he calls them in and says, basically says, what the hell? And says, you lied to them. Why weren't you going to tell me? Why didn't you tell me you had this disease? As he's going through this whole thing, I'm like, Paul has no no need to tell you anything about her private health. Yeah. And it was yeah. like the fact that he was railing against this, it did, it was like a somebody playing this beautiful symphony and they hit one wrong key and it was like, ooh, ooh, oh, Archer, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. But at the same time, I forgave it because he goes past it so fast because as right. soon as the two of them go, I didn't have to tell you this. He's like, you can tell he goes right past it because he's like, yeah, okay, you didn't have to tell me this, but still yeah. you lied to them and you didn't pull me into this so it's like he he did bring it back very quickly to where he did have a leg to stand on yeah so you could tell he was just hurt that like i thought we were friends why didn't you tell me this there was like this undercurrent that allowed me to forgive that wrong note that got played yeah i think that it would have i mean for me you 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 mentioned it's like listening to a beautiful symphony and then somebody hits a wrong note for me it was like listening to a beautiful symphony and then hearing that some of the instruments are kitchen pots and pans and just being like, I still get what the music is doing, but why did you choose to use those instead of going with the normal timpani? It's the, and for me, what, what happens is this, he is, I think if the scene had been a separate scene with DePaul in which he said to Paul, I want to be there in support of you. Why didn't you share this with me? That would have felt like you could have had the same moment. True. But it would have been a little more in character than he, he really does go from zero to 60 in an instant is hauls them both in to basically rake them over the coals of you lied. And it takes flock saying, I believe that even humans have, doctor mm-hmm. patient confidentiality and to paul says this is in no way impacting my performance therefore you did not have a right to know mm-hmm. and as the character of archer has demonstrated he has the ability to look at the other side and know like we need to give patience we need to we need to to seek out that moment he seemed a little too angry in that scene for my taste that I just, it, I just, it didn't I make sense. a little bit I disagree a little bit because they, they've shown over a course of many episodes, he's a little bit of a hothead. Mm. He does have a trigger where he will suddenly go to 60 miles an hour instantly on something. So it, it kind of made sense to me because it's like he calls them in. He's probably been in there for who knows how long stewing as to like, what the hell? So by the time they yeah. get in there, he's already just railing to like tear them apart. So right. I, 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 got, I got it. But I think you're 100% correct in he could have said something just different about like, why didn't you come to me? You could have come to me and talked to me about this instead of saying you should have been telling me because of X, Y, and Z, which he had no leg to stand on. He could have been a little more empathetic in his anger towards her. So it's like that would have worked a lot better and it wouldn't have been that wrong note or the (laughs) timpani of pants. Yeah. (laughs) So we're set up with a situation where the Vulcans, the three Vulcan doctors see through Phlox's request as they put the pieces together very quickly you're asking us about a vulcan disease you have a vulcan officer aboard your ship and there are a list of names of of certain people that we'd like her to take a look at and they surreptitiously again a very nice moment of the vulcans doing something it doesn't seem quite vulcan like Mm -hmm. stealing some of her dna by getting her to touch a, a a pad And then they're able to lift from that the fact that she has Pinar syndrome. And not only does this incorporate then the larger world view at the time when this episode was made in 2003, 
of AIDS being the realm of the immoral, they even go so far as to take the next step, which is similar to the kinds of laws that were in place restricting the entry of people with AIDS into the United States. They are going to pull to Paul from the enterprise, take her back to Vulcan, and effectively drum her out of the service. Yep. Because of the fact that she contracted this disease. Here's where the episode takes what I thought was a masterful turn into the morality play that it truly is. This is one Mm -hmm. of those episodes that I feel like you could pluck it out and show it to anybody who doesn't necessarily know Star Trek and they would get the point. They would, it's, it's similar to the episode from the next generation, which I believe is called the Drumhead, where yeah. Worf gets pulled in to an investigation looking for a conspiracy within the Federation. And the judge who is doing the investigation is seeing conspiracies where there are none and it's leading her directly into the ready room of Captain Picard. She views him as potentially a conspirator working against the Federation. Yep. And it takes Worf realizing that the logic of her arguments doesn't hold up in the light of day. And it's an extremely compelling episode that is like watching The Crucible. It is something that you can look at regardless of experience with Star Trek. You can see the dramatic story being told. And that's what happens here when everybody around to Paul, who knows the background of how she experienced a mind meld. Yes. We know from the episode Fusion yes. that she was effectively assaulted. She was assaulted by a Vulcan who was experimenting with emotion and his ability to mind meld and mind melded with her in a way that she was not willing to participate in. It was that episode being a metaphor for sexual assault. Here we have the repercussions of that being used as her out. You just knew to explain to them that you contracted this not as a result of mind melding, but because you were assaulted by somebody and she refuses to do it. Yeah, every single person that's on the Enterprise, including one of the doctors that we discover, he is one of the small minority that can do mind melds. He's even telling her, you need to tell them you were assaulted. And I love that in the episode, they never express, she never expresses why she's unwilling to do it until close to the end. It's yeah. like, she's just, ne- she's like, no, no, I'm not going to say it. And it's leaving it up to you, the viewer, to go, why isn't she wanting to do this? And you're starting to piece together, oh, I think I understand why she's probably not wanting to do this because this is clearly so biased. It doesn't matter how she got it. It shouldn't yes. matter how she got it. So by the time she delivers that statement, it's just like, I don't know, it was like a hammer blow of, to me. It was like yeah. perfect for me, perfectly timed in the episode to really make it the most dramatic moment for her when she says, I'm not going to say this because it's like, it doesn't, shouldn't matter how I got it. Yeah. She, she makes the point that it will further stigmatize yeah. the minority that can mind meld because by claiming this was the result of an assault, that becomes another culture, another cudgel against that group. They are immoral and this is the kind of thing they do. They are a danger to the rest of Vulcan society because this is what they do. And she sees through the bias of viewing the minority in this way and her emotional core will not bend that way. She will not even in self-defense or to gain access to information that might help her she will not reveal that aspect of the assault. And all of that I felt like was a perfectly rendered powder keg. I really felt like this episode packed this storyline so perfectly so that by the time you get to the end, and it's at the end where Eurus, who is the doctor of the three, he's the most sympathetic to her. He, in fact, shares the information that they've asked for with her. And he reveals that he is among the group that can naturally mind meld. And this is a piece of the puzzle in 2003 when the show was produced. One of the things I've already mentioned that celebrities began part of the turn of the tide 
against changing public perception about AIDS. Another element was doctors who would treat AIDS patients because they themselves were a part of the communities that were being ostracized and viewed as the immoral group. So just like the the words that are put in the mouth of the doctor who's the most vehemently against this minority, Eurus as a character is is given the words that were actually taking place in the early 2000s from the doctors who were saying I can't turn a blind eye to this group because I am of this group. So Eurus tries to share the information but there's still the withdrawal of T'Pol that is looming. And in a technique that is used again and again and again in Star Trek, somebody shows up with the regulations. I always yes. love it when the, t- the, the, dramatic, the dramatic turning point <laughs> of an episode is like, the Klingons are going to blow up that planet. What are we going to do? I just found this obscure rule in the they Klingon should- handbook that says you can't blow up a planet. Yeah. Now what are you going to do? They, they should call it the Picard maneuver because Picard does it like every other episode. next. Every other episode. Yes. Yes. He's always like, Mr. Data, look through this encyclopedia from this planet and find me a loophole. Yes, sir. <laughs> so Archer goes to the head doctor and points out to him. Uh, by the, the way, doctor? you've got. Yes, the head doctor. <laughs> He goes to the head doctor and says, Doc, I'm not sleeping well. <laughs> oh, God. Archer presents the doctor with the, literally the rule book of the Vulcan medical establishment and says, she's entitled to a hearing. And the doctor very reluctantly agrees, okay, tomorrow afternoon we'll meet and have this hearing. And which leads to, the scene that I wish had included the stuff I talked about before, this would have been the scene where I think Archer could have said like, Hey, I'm your friend, right? I'm not just your commanding officer. I'm your friend. When Archer goes to DePaul and says, I've bought us some time. And she is in the moment saying like, there's nothing we can do. They'll never agree to a hearing. And Archer says they already did. We've got some time. And this is when he makes the argument you need to come out and let them know you were assaulted. Phlox also backs this up, says you need to let them know you were assaulted. Eurus, who, when he shared the information, the medical information around Vulcan research into the syndrome, he says you need to come forward and let them know you were assaulted. And she's been very clear, no, I'm not going to do this. But it's during the hearing when the arguments are being made around the morality of denying support for a group of people who've done nothing wrong other than being born with a specific potential Mm -hmm. and judging them for that potential, not for their actions. It's during this discussion that Eurus outs himself and he steps forward to say, she told me that she was assaulted and he brings all of this to light in a way that now it benefits her not necessarily the type of action that we should be thrilled with, a doctor outing the details of, a, of a, another person in this way, but it puts Eurus in a position now where he is going to be. Now he is the one being targeted. And the mm-hmm. last we hear is that Eurus is potentially going to be removed from the medical service as a result of him outing himself. I don't know about you, but I couldn't help in that moment of wishing if this was Deep Space Nine, I think it definitely would have had a follow-up episode. Mm-hmm. If this was Next Generation, it might have had a follow-up episode. But I found myself thinking there was a follow-up storyline around Eurus and the Enterprise following them to Vulcan to yeah. try and defend this doctor and make some larger change in Vulcan's mindset around this illness. It does not happen. I understand why it doesn't happen. I was going to say, I understand why it doesn't happen. Yeah. It makes sense that it wouldn't happen. But I think that in the context of looking at the writing, the fact that it made me want that so desperately was really a sign of how strong the writing was in this episode. Always leave them wanting more. Yeah. Um, To to kind of veer away from this, I want to talk a little bit about the B plot because it is so polar opposite from this. It's basically really quickly. It's Flox's wife. Has come on one of his wives has come on board. She's setting up a neutron microscope that's very tricky and difficult to master. And she's training Trip on how to set it up, maintain it, and keep it working for Flocks. And 
she is flirting like mad with him and is yes. like in yeah. the dining hall rubbing his leg with her foot and like just coming on she has stopped she has set phasers to sex that yes, is yeah. yes like she's coming on hard and it's all about comic relief because trip is a good old southern boy who's like don't sleep with your neighbor's wife kind of guy and he's yeah. all you know, all uncomfortable. So the humor is coming from his discomfort and not wanting to offend her and trying to protect flocks. And it's, it's a, it's an amusing B storyline, but there are times where it feels out of place for the heaviness of what we're seeing on the A plot. Mm-hmm. But by the end of the episode, I really came to appreciate the balance that they were doing, jumping back and forth because both plots do relate in a mm-hmm very abstract way they're both about perceptions and biases because mm-hmm. the denobulans are polygamists yes. like they have three wives and three husbands and they sleep around and they don't have the same morality around sex that humans do and they've explored this exact thing about denobulans in previous episodes so it's not like out of the blue we know this but yeah. again it's fun to play with that biases of humans versus the way the denoblians operate operate and the way that the vulcans have bias against people of this of uh, pinar syndrome it's playing with the same exact kind of biases that are innate in all of us and one is a comic plot line and one is a dead serious plot line yes but they both are addressing the issue from two very different points of view and i thought it was very kind of clever how they wove those two together to keep it so that you weren't getting too bogged down in the weightiness of the topic. You were keeping it lightweight, but you were doing a really interesting way of exploring it. What yeah. do you think about it? I I agree with you. I thought at one point I'm just like, wow, these two things like do not mesh. Like, how do these how do these line up? How do you yeah. get how do you get the storyboard going for the B plot next to the heaviness of this one? Understandably, they were looking at balancing out emotional weight. But by the end of the episode, I saw everything you saw. I saw both of these stories being about how morality is a construct. Yes. That, and the issue being the through line of your morality, if you rest on do no harm, your moral choices start to look a little more clear when they are just based on bias. If you are saying, I will not treat this ill patient because I don't like how they live their life, do no harm doesn't make you look good in that light. And in the context of the B plot, the do no harm comes in the form of, well, I won't sleep with my neighbor's wife. But your neighbor is saying, like, hey, it doesn't bother me at all. So maybe there is no do no harm in that situation. It's, there's no stakes in that situation. Right. And it being about openness and communication. Both these storylines are about openness and communication. On the one hand, Trip is literally stumbling over the scenario until he does the thing that he thinks he should, which is talks to flocks about it. He's finally says yes. like, Hey, I think I need to talk to you about this. And once he clears the air, it resolves. And the same thing happens in the other storyline. When Eurus finally says, hey, there's details here that we're not talking about, it dispels the situation. The one will not go away. The bias in the Vulcan culture will not go away because Vulcan at large is not willing to talk about this. Whereas the Denobulans are set up as being so open and willing to talk about everything that there's no conflict. They're almost presented as just like this laid back, hippie trippy group hey man they just like hey man man, if you're into the experience experience it man. did she give you a rose petal bath yeah what (laughs) yeah the the other side of it is the a plot line obviously has a lot of character development around to paul which is wonderful i'm a sucker Mm -hmm. for the character development but they have character developments even in the b plot line yeah there's this wonderful scene like all this angst is going on with trip of like ah but you never see him really talking to other people about like looking for advice. And there's this amazing scene where he's going in to work out. Yeah. And he walks in and, and, and uh, was it of Reed all the people, there. he's of he's all the people all, to be in there, <laughs> no, but Reed's already exercising and he comes in and goes, 
she's at it again. Yeah. And I thought that was brilliant because it's like it shows he's been talking to other people about this all along. Yeah. And yeah. it was such a great shorthand to show this is like his best friend. And he's been yeah. telling him about it all along. And Reed's like, you got to talk to Flox. You got to, you know, get it out there. Yeah. I thought that was a great moment to show the relationship of them and how it's evolving over time. And then yeah. there's also the, at the end <laughs> when, when Flox's wife is about to leave and the two of them are like, doing that weird sniffing thing they do with each other and trips yeah. like right there. And he's like, yeah, like leaning back, trying to get away. Yeah. And there's this awkward moment where everybody just stands there. Nobody's saying anything. And trip just goes, well, I've got to get back to my warp engine. It's running a little hot. The plus, <laughs> the plasma is running a little hot. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was like, there's such great comic delivery and it's just like wonderful, just lighthearted character development between flux yeah. and trip yeah. and all these different characters. It was nice. And Fizal, in that moment, the wife says, I know how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. She says, I know how it feels. Trip leaves. And then I love the ending moment. Phlox and Fizal both going, humans. Yeah. The idea that from a Vulcan's perspective, humans are just controlled by their emotion. And from the Denobulan perspective, humans are overly controlled by moral decision making. Yes. Yes. There's this idea that somehow we are in the middle between the two extremes. It's a very, that's another moment of nice balance. And the last thing I want to say about the balancing act that this achieves is the metaphor up to Paul's storyline is about AIDS. It is not about sex. Nope. But they have introduced that element of that morality play, the sexual element, the idea of Congress, the idea of people judging other people's lives through a moral lens and deciding whether or not they are deserving of help, the sexual component of that, the fact that AIDS was viewed as the disease of an immoral group of homosexual people, is introduced in the other storyline. Sex is kept on your mind, sprinkled throughout the show, by the fact that Fazal is chasing Trip. So you're watching a morality play about immoral behavior and judgments and then you're watching a thing about sex. So it's reintroducing that element of what AIDS was viewed as. AIDS was viewed as the scarlet letter. It was mm-hmm. viewed as it's the signifier of whether or not you're a moral or immoral person because what that disease means is that you are a homosexual. Yep. I thought at the end, all of that came together in a way I did not expect. I was really blown away by the writing from that perspective. And I was happy to find some information about how this episode came to be, mm-hmm. which was that Viacom, the owner of the UPN network, in late 2002, gave an edict to the writers and producers of the programming on UPN saying that in 2003, they should have an episode devoted to the AIDS situation. I thought that that was really remarkable that this came from a directive by the network and that the writers in putting this together had an experience previously. Brandon Braga said that he had wanted to write an AIDS awareness story that was subtle and that it wasn't too preachy and it wasn't going for cheap sympathy. And I have a note about cheap sympathy in a moment, but there was an episode that never was produced. It was written by David Gerald, who's a old Star Trek writer. He wrote an episode for the next generation and it was called blood and fire. It was never, never made it out of development, but it had to do with this kind of storyline. So when they put this together, they tackled the idea in a way that I think still holds up. It's still, I think easily recognizable as an AIDS metaphor. Oh yeah. Very, but it's, I think it does everything they were looking for so that it touches on all of these ideas so that it's about more than AIDS. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's about the communities that were st- suffering with the disease the most. It's dealing with the fact that it's about prejudice at the heart of it. And it's about the potential way forward of opening up lines of communication and, exp- and really learning as much as we can. At the very end, Flock says of the research that he's been given by the Vulcans, For a disease that is a part of Vulcan society, there is surprisingly little research here. But based on what I'm seeing, I already see some avenues that could lead me potentially to creating a cure for this disease. 
So it's about learning and communication and openness. Again, it's about yes. those three things working together that can lead to better days for everybody, as opposed to letting those you view as lesser than suffer and struggle in their, the soup of their own making as, as the Vulcan doctors like to, to treat it. It's, it's my favorite part about science fiction. It's dealing with complex, thorny topics and dissociating itself from it so that you can have more rational discussion or exploration of the topic. You brought up the drumbeat. I'd bring up Measure of a Man from Next Generation. It's like there's yeah. so many storylines that you see this in science fiction. It's kind of the strength when they do it well like this. Yeah. And as far as putting a story like this together, that's a subtle allegory. It's not preachy and it's not going for cheap sympathy. As soon as I read that, immediately I couldn't help but hear in my head a little Haley Joe Osment say, Walker told me I have AIDS. <laughs> People may or may not be aware of the fact that on October 18th, 1997, the show Walker, Texas Ranger, which starred Chuck Norris as the aforementioned Ranger named Walker, they had an episode, a two-parter called Lucas, in which the actor Haley Joel Osment appeared as a young man, a young boy, who, as I mentioned, by the end, Walker for some reason, the Texas Ranger informs this boy, you've got AIDS. It is the most ham-fisted, embarrassing, cheap plea for sympathy you could possibly imagine, which is why for a number of years, the clip of that was aired on Conan O'Brien's late night show. <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> repeatedly as a punchline for roughly, I think, uh, about 15 years. So. To our listeners, I'm curious, did all of you have a similar experience to Matt and I? Matt and I in this one are clearly in lockstep, which can happen, doesn't always happen, but can happen. And the two of us seem to have watched the same episode. Did everybody out there agree? Are you in the, the mindset that the A storyline and the B storyline really do work together to create this nice balance of a very difficult topic? Or did you feel like it didn't hold up? Let us know in the comments, or if you're not on YouTube, you can find the contact information in the podcast description. And next time we're going to be discussing the episode Cease Fire. Matt, any predictions about what Cease Fire might be about? I think they're going to be probably telling somebody to stop firing. Mm. Or maybe putting out a fire. We'll find out. It could be. Smoke the bear. In the meantime, is there anything you want to share with the listeners about what you have coming up in your other channel? By the time this episode's out, I sh on my main channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell, I should have an episode out about 3D printing homes and the good and the bad of the process. As for me, you can go to seanfarrell.com and you can find out information about my writing there. You can also look for my writing at Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore or public library. My books are available in all those locations. Thank you so much for your interest. Don't forget to review us and subscribe. And when you do so, know that it's greatly supporting the channel. We appreciate all of your time and we thank you so much for listening or checking us out on YouTube. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye everybody.